This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, the underappreciated risks of egg donation. It's all being promulgated as a sort of an easy way to pay off your student loan. People need to understand what we know and don't know and what all is involved. Egg donations years later when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. The stallions may go off and form bachelor groups, which sounds awful lot like a fraternity. Are stallions the animal kingdom equivalent of frat bros? Then... When he won the election, he was history. You know, he was the first African-American president. Exploring the photos from a historic presidency, I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station and subscribe and listen to shows anytime on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Just about a year ago, the world's first test tube baby turned 40. Since her birth in 1978, about 5 million babies have been born through in vitro fertilization. Most of the time, a woman's own eggs are harvested, fertilized, and re-implanted. The child is biologically her own. But women whose own eggs can't be used increasingly turn to egg donors. Some agencies say more than 50,000 children have been born in the United States using donor eggs, but nobody really knows the number or what happens to the donors when they're done. None of this is required. Nothing in this industry, any of the assisted reproduction industry, is regulated. That's something that people should be aware of. All of the conventions in terms of screening, in terms of number of times people can donate, all that is recommended. Nothing is required. Dr. Linda Kahn is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Pediatrics at the New York University School of Medicine. She's studied assisted reproductive technologies. We don't know much, to be honest, uh, because these women are not followed. These women provide eggs, and in some states, the records of their donations are supposed to be kept. This is a state-by-state regulation, and some states... They're not necessarily kept, so there's really no way of tracing them. There's no record of this in the woman's medical record because she's generally having this done at a clinic that's not her normal place where she receives gynecologic care. And as we don't have an, a uniform electronic medical record system in this country, those records that she donated may not be linked. So there's really no way to trace these women, and there's no requirement that they be followed up in any systematic way. There's not even a registry. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention started collecting data about donors only a couple of years ago, but a lot of it is just the basics, like height, weight, and age. But a donor's health? It's not investigated very much at all, according to Dr. Richard Paulson, professor of reproductive medicine at the University of Southern California and president of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. Egg donors, by definition, have to be young, healthy women. So they're screened in the sense that we choose people who are already young and healthy. So 
Once you say that, the further medical screening that is required beyond that is not really that extensive. To a recipient couple, the most important statistic about an egg donor may be her SAT score. Dr. Wendy Chavkin, professor of public health and obstetrics and gynecology at Columbia University, says it's a big business with no incentive to slow down. There are many women and couples who are paying very large sums of money and getting donor eggs is one which really we should call seller eggs because they're not donations. They are commodities for sale. But getting eggs from somebody else is an important component of the process. So there is every inducement to proceed full speed ahead. The going rate for egg donation is five to $10,000 for a process that takes less than a month. The woman will first have her cycle artificially stopped. So she'll basically be put into artificial menopause, including all the wonderful symptoms of menopause one might expect. Uh, potential effects could include hot flashes, vaginal dryness, mood swings, etc. And then once your cycle stopped, it gets restarted by daily injection of ovarian stimulation drugs. And as her ovaries are being stimulated, she's being monitored via transvaginal ultrasound to see how her ovaries are responding. And at a certain point, usually after a couple of weeks, her ovaries will hopefully have produced an optimal amount of eggs and then she'll undergo a retrieval process. The reason you give all these hormones is rather than relying on an ovary to pop one egg a month, which is generally what happens, occasionally it'll pop two and you might end up with twins. In these cases, you are trying to get the ovaries to release more than that so that you can, quote, harvest a bunch of eggs at one time. Doctors aim to have a woman produce 15 to 20 eggs for retrieval. The donor is anesthetized while eggs are aspirated out of the ovaries with a needle, a procedure that carries relatively little risk. But if the administration of hormones sends the ovaries into overdrive, it can have serious effects. If you overshoot, such as we said in a patient with PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, and you get more than 25 or 30 eggs, these women are then at increased risk for something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, in which the ovaries get really quite enlarged, and then they also start kind of oozing a fluid into the abdomen. It's self-limiting. It goes away, but it can take two weeks before all of that fluid reabsorbs. So it's PMS on steroids, literally. However, Khan says if a woman does have complications, she may have to go to her own gynecologist at her own expense. And the long-term effects of egg donation are unknown. While women who undergo IVF with their own eggs are registered and followed... There's no comparable registry for egg donors. So there's no way to even get the aggregate data. I'm not talking about the individual level data, but even the averages from clinics of how often women have adverse events. We have no adverse event reporting system for egg provision. We have it for vaccination. We have it for FDA-approved drugs. There's just no way to follow up, and so we have really no idea who these women are, what health outcomes they're having long-term, just anecdotal evidence. What we know the best comes from Scandinavia, where they have registries, where they have their health data linked and they're able to follow people 
over time and know what kinds of treatment they got and what happens to them later. The hypothetical concern would be ovarian cancer. Now, the data from the Scandinavian countries that have followed people for some number of years are reassuring. They haven't seen an increase in ovarian cancer. I would say, however, that we haven't followed people long enough because cancers generally tend to have long latency periods, you know, a long time between exposure and the development of disease. So I am partially reassured by these data from Scandinavia, but I would say the word's not quite in yet. But even though we don't have the records of egg donors in the United States, Paulson says the records of those who've undergone IVF are very useful. Those women are more or less donating eggs to themselves. We can extrapolate safety to some degree, but the results go only so far. We don't really know the super long-term risks, and people always worry that if you disrupt the body in some way, for example, stimulating the ovaries, are you going to create a situation of high risk for ovarian cancer or breast cancer? And uh, so far, the data that have been collected, and we do have, I would say, 20, 25 years worth of information, it looks like that is not the case. The data are really quite reassuring, but you never know super long term. However, Khan says there's one important difference between egg donors and women who've undergone IVF, and we don't know how it changes things long term. The woman undergoing IVF, providing eggs for her own treatment, is only going to undergo retrieval once, maybe twice. A woman who is a commercial egg provider, it is recommended. There are no requirements here, and there's no way of tracking this, but it is recommended that she not undergo the procedure more than six times. But there are unscrupulous agencies, and there also is the fact that she can go from one agency to another. She doesn't have to tell them that she maxed out at one agency. She can then go to another agency, do another six times. She can go to another agency and do it another six times. So she's undergoing higher levels of stimulation than a woman who provides her own eggs, and she's undergoing this procedure many, many more times. A few women who've donated eggs say that later on, when they wanted to get pregnant, they couldn't. But it's not because they used up all their eggs on donations. number of eggs isn't an issue. By the time a baby girl is born, she has about 2 million eggs in her ovaries. And on average, even though a woman produces one egg a month, she's blowing through about 1,000 because only the best one gets released. So the issue of her running out of eggs is not a big deal. If they're taking 50 eggs instead of one egg, it's still a drop in the bucket. The concern with long-term fertility is not that she's going to run out of eggs. The problem may be that she experiences an infection as part of this procedure, and that infection may damage, say, her fallopian tubes so that she later on needs to undergo fertility treatment herself or damages an ovary or loses an ovary. These are the kinds of medical complications that we're worried about. But are women aware of all the risks? Agreement forms are required for each transaction. But given all the uncertainty and the rush of business turning donation into a commodity, Khan isn't sure that consent will be all that informed. I think that a lot of women enter this not really appreciating the complexity of it, the risks of it. And they sign a lot of legal documents and may not understand what they're actually signing away. And in the end, what they may be responsible for, as I mentioned earlier, if there's medical complications after this is over, it's on them. Do they have insurance? Is that insurance going to cover this? 
They have huge deductibles. What's the story here? A lot of women have been burned badly. We could do a much better job of public education for everybody about what's involved, whereas right now it's all being promulgated as sort of an easy way to pay off your student loans, you know, an easy way to make $10,000. So I think people need to understand what we know and don't know and all is involved, etc. However, Khan says it's probably too late for regulation of egg donation in the United States, especially without a unified national health service to follow donors. Physicians organizations provide recommendations, but doctors aren't required to follow them. Women need to be educated on the risks when they decide to help another family gain a much-wanted daughter or son. I'm Reed Pence. With many opportunities to celebrate during fall and winter, preparing foods for all the festive occasions can be both a joy and a challenge. Selecting basic foods that can work in multiple ways, such as fresh grapes, can simplify things greatly. According to registered dietitian Courtney Romano, health advisor to the California Table Grape Commission. Fresh grapes are inherently beautiful. They taste great and are easy to keep around for everyday eating as well as special occasions. Keep them on hand for a simple and healthy snack option. Arrange them in a pretty bowl for a classic and edible centerpiece or in small clusters to adorn a serving platter. Use them as a special ingredient. Heart-healthy grapes can be dipped in dark chocolate for a delightful dessert that is good for you, too. Heart-healthy grapes from California are in season from May through January. Grapes of all colors, red, green, and black, are a natural source of beneficial antioxidants and other polyphenols, which may help contribute to heart health. Visit GrapesFromCalifornia.com for more information. It's National Alzheimer's Disease Awareness Month, as well as National Family Caregivers Month. The two go together, since there are more than 16 million families and friends in the U.S. caring for someone with Alzheimer's. According to the Alzheimer's Association, four out of five caregivers say they'd like more support in providing care, especially from their families, yet 39% haven't engaged others in caregiving tasks. Ruth Drew, Director of Information and Support Services for the Alzheimer's Association, has suggestions on ways to help. Make a standing appointment to give the caregiver a break so they can run errands or go to a support group. Caregivers often feel isolated or alone, so check in with a phone call or stop by for a visit. And when you offer support, be specific. Say, I'm going to the store, what do you need, rather than call me if you need anything. People overwhelmingly agree caregiving for someone with Alzheimer's should be a group effort. Find more tips and resources for caregivers at alz.org. This month is Movember, a time for men to think about their prostate health. But it's not just prostate cancer. Far more men are affected with a non-cancerous prostate condition, benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH. It's an enlargement of the prostate that gets worse as men age, often blocking the urethra, producing bothersome urinary symptoms, and interrupting sleep. Dr. David Sussman of New Jersey Urology and paid consultant for Eurolift believes men should know their treatment options. Relief through medication can be inadequate and temporary with significant side effects such as dizziness, loss of libido, and erectile dysfunction. Now there are new options such as the Eurolift system, a minimally invasive outpatient procedure for BPH that in the pivotal FDA study did not cause new sustained erectile dysfunction and offers rapid relief and recovery. Common side effects are mild to moderate and typically resolve in two to four weeks. Results may vary. Visit Eurolift.com today to find a urologist near you and see if the Eurolift system procedure is right for you. 
It turns out that some people may not eat their vegetables because of their genes. A new study presented at the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions 2019 has found a specific gene variation that makes vegetables taste extremely bitter. People with the gene are more than two and a half times as likely to eat only small amounts of heart-healthy vegetables as other people, according to study author Jennifer Smith of the University of Kentucky School of Medicine. Taste is an important factor in food choice, and people with this gene are called super tasters. They perceived a ruin-your-day level of bitter when they tasted the test compound, so they're likely to find broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and cabbage unpleasantly bitter. They may also react negatively to dark chocolate, coffee, and sometimes beer. Smith says you have to consider how things taste if you really want your patient to follow nutrition guidelines. Researchers hope to use genetic information to figure out spices that can appeal to super tasters to make it easier for them to eat more vegetables. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Radio Health Journal is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. Homeless people really are us. They're just a much, much less fortunate subset of us myths about the homeless and why we want to blame the victim. Then a beauty guide for women with cancer. Let's face it, listen, you're still living. You want to look good. You want to have a sense of control and kind of feel like yourself. All that and more on Radio Health Journal.